Welcome to the Westminster Chapel podcast. For more information and to support our mission to London and beyond, please visit westminsterchapel.org.uk. Well, good morning, everybody. It's a real joy to be with you. Uh, Our Commission Church in Southampton sends you their love. Uh, Southampton's a lovely place to live. Um, I don't know if you've ever read the Lonely Planet Guide to Southampton. It says it's a nice place to stop off on your way to somewhere really nice. (laughs) I think that's a bit harsh, really. Of course, Southampton's famous for the Titanic. It wasn't our finest hour, really. Um, Things have gone uphill since then, though. It's a lovely place to live, and uh, it's a real joy to uh, be part of the church down there. And uh, they'll be meeting as we're meeting here. In fact, we've got another church in the city joining us. Uh, in our church in Southampton this morning because there's a, there's a 10k run that goes right past their building but it shut their meeting down because nobody can get there. So they've all decided to come to our church, which is nice. So we, we should have a good full house there today. And it's a joy to be here as well um, on a day when you're baptising people. Oh, what a thrill. I mean, I, I look back on my baptism. I look on the baptisms of those that we've seen come to faith in Jesus. And they're always high days. They're the days we live for. Because we know that in those days, we're really carrying out the big thing that Jesus left us to do. Remember the Great Commission where he told us to go on. I want you to go into the world. I want you to tell people all about me. And when they come to believe in me, I want you to then baptize them as a sign of this new faith. And then spend the rest of their lives teaching them all about the things that I've taught you. And so that's a lasting ordinance for us as the church of Jesus to be going through this process where we're seeing people rescued out of the world and brought into this beautiful kingdom that we so enjoy being part of and brought into the family of God. So it's a real joy to be here. Uh, And I'm just, I picked up on a bit in the scriptures that centers around some baptism. So I'm just going to read it for you, and then we will dig in a little bit. It's from John's Gospel, uh, and it's John chapter 3. So you can get your Bibles open. The words will come up as well. Um, And it's chapter 3, and I'm going to just read from verse 22 through to verse 36. In fact, I've got, I've got the NIV in front of it. It might be the ESV up there because I think I did the prep in the ESV, but my, my Bible that's always in my bag is an NIV because it's my tatty one. I don't mind if I get, lose it somewhere, which I often do. Leave it in churches and leave it on trains and leave it on tubes and leave it in cars and leave it on park benches, but it's survived so far. Anyway, John chapter 3, verse 22. After this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside where he spent some time with them and baptised. Now John was also baptising at Anon near Salim because there was plenty of water and people were constantly coming to be baptised. This was before John was put in prison. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one who you testified about, well, he's baptizing and everyone's going to him. To this, John replied, a man can receive only what is given him from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Christ, but I am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits 
and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine. And it's now complete. He must become greater. I must become less. The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he's seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. The man who has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. For the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God. For God gives the spirit without limit. The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in his hands. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. Father, we just want to ask that as we look into this passage of Scripture and this moment in history, you would allow it to live for us in such a way that it brings faith and courage. Father, I pray especially for those who may never have heard about you, that faith might come today and that they would know that you are God. Amen. Amen. So John starts with two words, after this. I I always want to ask the question, well, after what? What's the context here? What's happened just before it? Well, this is just after the moment when Jesus had a secret meeting in the night with the religious leader, Nicodemus. Many of you will know the story. He was one of the Pharisees. And Jesus shared with Nicodemus perhaps the most important piece of information any individual human being can can hear on this planet. Because Jesus told Jesus that because of God's love for us, there's the possibility for every single one of us to have a brand new life. That's basically what he was saying to Nicodemus, because he said, we all have a physical life and we're born, we come out of our mothers when we're born, we're alive. But he said, it's possible for you to be born spiritually, born a second time, born again, and have a spiritual life as well as a physical life. And so he told Nicodemus that it was possible for him to swap all of the condemnation and the darkness that the world around him was embroiled in, and it's possible to swap that for light and life and joy and peace. And the thing Jesus said to him, it was simply by believing in Jesus. And in a way, that's what we're celebrating with the baptisms today, that in believing Jesus, we're somehow being washed clean of the pollution of the world. And that's what the water in the tank in front of us really represents in one way. It represents this kind of bath for those who have been spiritually unclean, who will be washed clean by Jesus. And so it's just after that has happened, it's just after he's had this conversation with Nicodemus, that Jesus then goes out into the countryside and he's with his disciples and they're baptizing people. Um, uh, And interestingly, he wasn't the only one baptizing people because his cousin was there it's a bit of a family business thing going on his cousin John was also there (laughs) baptizing people which brings us to this kind of idea of baptism there they were and and the place where they were gives us a glimpse as to what baptism should look like he was at a place it says called Anon near Salim now Anon means place of springs 
So it was a place where there were springs, and verse 23 tells us that John had been baptizing there because there was plenty of water there. Now here's the thing, some of us would have grown up in traditional churches and we'd have heard the word baptism and we'd have seen people being baptized, young babies being brought in their lovely white outfit, brought up to the front and put in the hands of a slightly nervous vicar who would kind of hold, hoping they're not going to drop the baby. And they dip their hands in the holy water and perhaps sprinkle a little bit or mark with a cross. And that's a very different thing than what we see here in Anon near Salim. You see, the way the New Testament portrays baptism, there always seems to be plenty of water. Plenty of water. And that's because of what baptism, again, represents. You see, baptism powerfully represents a connection with Jesus in three of the most important parts of Jesus' life and ministry. His his life of obedience, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. So we're connected with Jesus in his life, but then we've got these three things that come at the end, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And I want you to picture this tank in front of me as a tomb, because it's a picture of death. Jesus died. The people that are being baptized today, in one sense, have died They've died to their old way of life. They've died to their selfishness. They've died to their sin. And then when they're under the water, it's a picture of them being connected with Jesus in his burial. So it is like a tomb. You remember Jesus died, was taken down from the cross, put in a tomb. Stone was rolled in front of it. He was out of sight. And momentarily, when people are under the water, they're out of sight. And it's a profound visual image of being connected with Jesus in his moment of burial. It's very difficult to get buried in a sprinkle, isn't it? You understand the challenge of that. But then, of course, the third thing that the union represents and that baptism represents is that there's this resurrection to new life. And just as Jesus broke out of the tomb on that first Easter morning, so the people that are coming up out of the water are being raised up to new life. So if that's what the picture represents, you can understand why they needed to be at Anon, a place where there was plenty of water. So, there's Jesus and his disciples on one side, and then you've got John and his disciples on the other side. And people were coming to be baptised from all over the place. And and it's almost as if you can picture them kind of queuing up to be baptised. It wasn't like they were going out searching for people to be baptised. People had heard that baptisms were happening, and there was a thirst. There was a deep desire in those people to somehow get their lives cleansed, put right, have meaning, have purpose, have peace. And so people were starting to come and line up getting ready to be baptised. Now here's the thing, I don't think that's changed. You know, I think there's still a desire in every human heart for peace. There's still a desire in every human heart for forgiveness or for cleansing. So why aren't hundreds of people queuing up for baptism? I think in reality, I think it's because they're trying to find their peace and their meaning and their purpose in all sorts of different areas. You and I know that. We often do that, don't we? 
Some people try and find their meaning and their status or their peace or their purpose in, 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 in having a perfect family life. And we make that the big thing. That's a good thing, but it's not the main thing. Some people will just try to do it by being really super religious. You know, I'll go to church, I'll say my prayers, I'll do my Hail Marys, I'll, whatever it might be, and whatever religion. We try and find our, our meaning and purpose by kind of some religious ritual that will somehow make us right with God. Some of us just do it through, you know, the kind of, I don't know quite what to call it really, but just that pursuit of, of wealth and status and importance in our career and our role at work. And so, so we kind of think if we really make it, if we get that next promotion or if we're able to buy that next car or if we're able to move up the property ladder, I mean, we even call it a property ladder, don't we? If I can climb up that ladder. And we're all on this search for, 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 for importance, for status, for meaning, for significance. Just as these people who are coming to queue up at the baptisms that Jesus was doing and the baptisms that John was doing. They're all trying to find that thing that seems so elusive. Anyway, there they are baptizing. And obviously, people are looking at the queues starting to develop, and there's a bit of a discussion going on um, between some of John's disciples and this Jewish chap about, it says it's about purification. Now, obviously, you can imagine purification. They're in a place where there's lots of water, and they're obviously observing baptism. So this subject has come, come up as it naturally would. What are they doing? They're getting purified for their sins. So the water, the pu- so you can imagine how the conversation would go. It's just people in the line chatting about what they're observing. So they're starting to talk a little bit about purification and sin and, and cleansing. Actually, when I was, I was just looking at my notes on the way up this morning, and I felt God wanted to say that these people who had just stood by, and they were kind of interested, and they were asking questions, I felt God say that there's a few people here today like that. You know, it's not that you'd be a regular part of this church community. Uh, it's not that you'd often regularly think about things of faith or Certainly not about purification. But you might be interested, you might be interested in a conversation about it. And I felt God wanted to say, well, you're in the right place for a conversation. There's lots of people here that would love to talk to you about what this thing really means. And so I want to urge you, just like these people that were queuing up and had an interesting conversation about water and purification, I I encourage you, while you're here, have a conversation about it with somebody. Because there is more to this than you would ever dream possible. And today could be the opening of a door, and the vista that you see when you go through that door will be more marvellous than anything you've yet imagined. So if you feel like you're on the edge of things, and you've just popped in today, or you're just visiting today, I don't want you to discount yourself. You know, if you're in the queue and you're observing the baptisms, ask ask the people who are getting baptised, wait, what made you go? Tell me your story a bit more. What happened when you did that? Or ask somebody who you might recognize or somebody you've come with. That would be fine. Anyway, so John's baptizing this side. Jesus is baptizing this side. And some of John's disciples, because John had disciples as well, they notice as they look across the water at the queue for Jesus' baptism. And they kind of, they notice this queue getting considerably longer 
while theirs doesn't seem to be growing quite as much. And that little thing pops into their heart that happens to all of us when something like that happens. They were jealous. They were a little bit envious. And they're like, hang on a minute. John's been here for ages baptizing people. This bloke who's only just turned up, look at his cue. Can you see? I mean, it's funny, isn't it? How envy crops up everywhere, doesn't it? I mean, it just does. Somebody said to me, well, comparison is the thief of joy. I mean, it just does. When we start comparing ourselves with two others, I mean, it just robs us of every bit. Be you, be you. <laughs> but, but, but there they are, and they're, they're getting irked because that queue is getting longer. John's is getting shorter. So in verse 26, they say to John, look, he's baptizing, and all are going to him. They're almost saying, look, come on, John. You're going to stick up for yourself. What are you going to do about it, John? And so there's this bit of jealousy you know it's almost like like when churches squabble you know I mean they're both baptizing aren't they they're both doing good things but it's almost like they're saying John are you happy with that bloke nicking all of your sheep all of your baptism candidates you know you've been discipling some of them for ages and now they've gone over there to that church we don't need to deal in envy or jealousy, it does rob us of our joy. But in that moment of weakness and jealousy, we begin to see two things. We begin to see exactly who John is, and we begin to see exactly who Jesus is. And John confidently turns to his group of followers and he says to them, guys, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it's given him from heaven. So basically he's saying, look, this is God's work. Who am I to argue? They're being baptised. And they're being baptised by him. And he would not be able to even lift a finger if God hadn't allowed it to happen. So we learn something here, and it's all to do with identity. You see, John is making it clear who he is, and he's making it clear who Jesus is. And he's helping all of them to see that this isn't about who's got the biggest following, but it's about God. And so, with regard to identity, this is where John really begins to unpack some very helpful truth that I want us all to see today. And it centers on this idea of identity. You see, John isn't concerned about this increasing line of followers over on this side and his own diminishing line because he's very clear about his own identity and he's very clear about the identity of Jesus. And he begins to draw out an answer to the two big questions that every human being always spends their life trying to answer. And those two big questions are, who am I and who is God? They're the two things that John is addressing. And now you might not immediately recognise it, but we're all asking those questions for most of our lives, trying to define our identity and how it connects in with something more. I wonder if that's you today. You come today and you feel, I'm just not sure who I am or what this is all about. There must be more than this.
And in verse 28, John answers them and explains to them about identity. And he says this, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. So he's clearly saying some very deliberate things about who he is and who he isn't. So John's got this deep assurance of who he is not. He says, I am not the Christ. The Christ is the Messiah, the Savior who was promised, who was, everybody was looking forward to the day when this Messiah would come and rescue God's people and deliver them. And John's there saying, I am not him. So he's aware of his own humanity. He's aware of his part in the story. He's got the humility to say, look, this isn't about cues or baptism or anything. This is about who I'm not. I'm not him. I'm not the Christ. I'm not the Saviour. I'm not the Messiah. But I am here... And I do have a purpose. And my purpose is to turn everybody's heads and get them to look at him. You see, this is the the purpose of every believer. This is your purpose if you're a believer in Jesus today. It's not to say this is all about me, but to say this is all about him. But again, we battle with that, don't we? And we spend most of our lives trying to be our own, I don't know, functional kind of saviour. I don't know, I do it, I'm sure you do it as well. But you know, when something goes wrong, and you just go, oh, I'm such an idiot. Like it was all my fault. See, if it all depends on me, I'm sorry, we're all scuppered. (laughs) But then equally, when I do something well, and I do something good, and I think I've done rather a good job there. Somebody give me some praise. Somebody give me some admiration, some encouragement, because I've done really well there. If we make it all about that, then we've equally fallen into the trap of thinking that we're the saviour, we're the Christ, we're the Messiah. The reality is whether we fail or we succeed, we're human, he's God. We're small, he's immense. We're flawed, he's perfect. You see, all of our lives should be spent saying to those around us on our side of the river, it's not me, it's him. So if you come today because you want to see a celebrity, or you want to, like, I don't know, meet some important people, sorry, there aren't any. There is one here, though, who's baptising today, and his name is Jesus. You know, I spent years trying to be my own saviour. <laughs> Absolutely years. And I always kept thinking, if I just did a bit better, if I just tried a bit harder, if I just didn't muck it up at the last minute, then life would be good. Yeah, but again, I, I, was, I didn't have the assurance that John the Baptist had. I didn't know who I was. Genuinely didn't know who I was. My identity was insecure. Until that day when I saw him, the one who's baptizing on this side of the river. That day when he revealed himself to me. That day when I recognized that he was the Savior. Then I really did know who I was. 
In that day, I knew I was a son. I was loved. I was chosen. And nothing can give you greater dignity than that. So I didn't know who I was, but similarly, I didn't really know who God was. Had no idea if he existed at all until that day when he drew me close and became that loving father. And it was that moment that I received the kind of security that John the Baptist had on this side of the river, when he knew clearly who he was and who he wasn't. You see, from that moment on, I was no longer concerned about the cues and the popularity and the success and whatever it might be that gives us that sense of well-being. I didn't care. All I knew was the rest of my life was going to be given to saying, you've got to see this guy. You've got to come into his presence and you've got to know him because he is the one who took my sinful dead life and he raised me up and put my feet on a rock. So if you want to know anything good today, look at him. Look at him. You see, John discovered his life's purpose. Not to be the Christ, but to point to the Christ. And it took away every bit of drivenness in him. And then John goes on to, to describe what he means verse 29, just look at that again with me. He says a slightly strange thing. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and it's now complete. He must become greater. I must become less. So he's painting this slightly out of kilter. We've been looking at water and purification and baptisms and suddenly he's painting a picture of a a wedding and three characters at a wedding a bride a bridegroom and the groom's friend and when you get under the skin of this it's actually quite a funny picture but in the culture of the time the bridegroom would have a friend in a bit of a, a kind of best man kind of role now in our culture in the UK best man's role is really to just make sure that the the groom is sober when he turns up to church, to make sure he hasn't lost the rings, uh, make sure he's dressed, and uh, you know, to get him safely to the altar, maybe to do a speech to embarrass his friend or something like that. Um, but, but in this culture of the scriptures, there was much more to the, 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 the bridegroom's friend's role than those kind of things. Because the bridegroom had a, the, 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 bridegroom, the bridegroom's friend had a very important responsibility, and that was to make sure that once the whole ceremony was over and everything was dying down, he needed to make sure that the bridegroom found the tent that the bride was in. And he, this friend would stand outside the tent, just with one ear to the canvas, making sure that this wedding was consummated. And when it was, he'd let out a yell of joy because he knew that this was all now done and dusted. His job was over. This couple were now united. Intimacy had happened and glee is the result. Joy is the result. So John's saying, why should I be jealous? Why should I be jealous? I've stood here and had my ear to the canvas and I'm hearing this incredible bridegroom, Jesus Christ, who is the groom of the church, the bride of Christ. And this whole story one day is going to unfold where the people of God are united to the bride, 
to the, to the bridegroom and they'll have this beautiful heavenly wedding. And he said, and I've had my ear to the canvas of this whole story of God's people coming into a place of intimacy and union with the king of the universe. So he's saying, why should I be jealous? I've got the best seat in the house, is his perspective. And then John says something very simple, but very profound. And it's all about transformation. Transformation. Because he says at the very end of this little bit in verse 30, he must become greater, I must become less. So there's this kind of sliding scale that's going on. John's saying, my life now must diminish, and the life of Jesus must increase. So John clearly recognizes his purpose here. It was to prepare the way for this one who was way, way greater than he was ever going to be. And so he's, he's pointing everyone towards Jesus, the Savior, the Christ. And now John, and this must take real humility, John is the one who then says, I now need to slip into the background so that nobody notices me. Now, isn't that the opposite of most of our driven human ambition? Normally, we want to be in the limelight. But John says, I want to be in the darkness. I want to be drawn away so that every eye is on him. You see, that's what it means to become a Christian. That's what it means when you step over a line of faith and say, I'm going to follow Jesus. Because you no longer go from needing to stand and blow your own trumpet. Look how amazing I am. Everybody, boss, notice me. Girls, notice me. We don't need that anymore. We're now blowing the trumpet for this one. Again trying to get every eye to see him so that Jesus takes center stage. You see, once you've sorted out the identity issue, who I am, who God is, your life then becomes a journey of increase and decrease, of God's influence increasing in your life and your own influence or the influence of the world around us decreasing. We use the word sanctification often. It's basically this passage that we go through where we, bit by bit, step from one glory to the next and we become more and more like Jesus until we are like him. And the bits of our old self are diminished and diminished and diminished so that at the time, when the time comes when Jesus returns, we are like him and we're accepted and we're welcomed into the glory that he knew in heaven. You see, that's how he refines us. So the bits of us that are rebellious, he slowly turns them into obedience. The bits of us that were ugly, he slowly turns them beautiful. The bits of us that were selfish, he slowly makes them generous. And bit by bit, he brings about, from our imperfection, his perfection. Now, here's the thing. This isn't about you trying harder. (laughs) 
Because that's the mantra we hear all the time. If only you worked a little bit harder. If only you did a little better. If only you put in a little bit more effort. If only you hadn't got that wrong. No. This isn't about you doing anything differently. It's about allowing Jesus to come in and transform you from within into his likeness. You see, the way John describes Jesus, he uses words like coming from above. He's making some clear statements about Jesus, the Jesus story, about his, his history, where he's come from, coming from above. He describes him as being above all. He also uses the word from heaven. So he's saying, this guy, he's not even, why would I compare? He's not even from earth. That's how other he is. That's how different he is. He's from above. He's from heaven. And so when he's comparing, he knows there's no comparison. So he's pointing to the authority and the perfection and the holiness of Jesus. And he's contrasting it with his own earthly humanity and weakness. Now here's the thing. Jesus calls us to that. Jesus calls us into this relationship of transformation where he increases in us and we decrease. But what John clearly says is some people don't listen. Verse 32, he bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. So this character on this side of the river, Jesus, bears witness to what he's seen and heard. What has Jesus seen and heard? Something that, unless we put our hands in his, we will never see or hear. He's experienced glory. He's experienced heaven. It was his normal place of residence until he decided to take a long walk into the sin-sick world that we live in, in order to rescue it. All he'd ever tasted was perfection. That's what he's seen and heard. That's been his whole life's experience from eternity past and into eternity future. All he'd ever known was perfect relationship with the Father, perfect love, perfect harmony in a beautiful, sinless environment. So John says he bears testimony to what he's seen and heard. He's saying this Jesus wants to tell you how good heaven is. He wants to tell you how... Beautiful eternity is. He wants you to gaze on the beauty of a holy God and be in awe and fall in love with him. That's the testimony that he's bringing. But John says, but no one receives his testimony. I wonder, maybe today, would you receive his testimony? Would you not be one of those many, but would you be one of the few that says, if heaven is that good, and if Jesus is that good, I'm going to believe in him. If my identity is to become less, and I'm to choose to place myself into this perfect God-man, then I am going to hear that testimony, and I am going to be part of this story. Because John says in verse 33 that whenever people do receive the testimony, this is what he says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Now, I can't begin to describe how good it's going to be, even just from the pictures in the scriptures. 
It's going to be way beyond anything we could imagine. But that's our inheritance. That's our future. If you step over a line of faith today, those people going through the waters of baptism today, that's where they'll be. In this beautiful, beautiful, glorious, harmonious thing with, with Father, Son, and Spirit. You know, the final bit of this little verse, few verses that we've read today, gives us a choice to make about where our eternity will be. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So John's setting up a point of decision. And this is what, this is what I guess... The people being baptised today have made a decision about something. Otherwise, why go through with this ridiculous thing? I mean, it is funny, isn't it? I mean, standing in front of a few hundred people and getting into a big vat of water and coming out again. You would only do that if you were internally convinced that there was something more to it than just a vat of water. Wouldn't you? You see, this is what they've come to believe. They've come to believe that the wrath of God has, has somehow been, 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 been absorbed by what Jesus achieved when he died on the cross. The anger of God at our sin, our rebellion, our waywardness. Somehow Jesus took it into his own body and it was nailed with him there and left there forever. Which means that the body that was taken down from the tomb and that then was raised to life was demonstrating a victory over this sin and death. And we get to be included in that, that victory. Those being baptised today are included in that victory. If you step over a line of faith today, you're included in that victory. And you get to be the one who can say, I've believed in this Jesus, and I believe in his death, and I believe in his resurrection, and I believe he is the Christ, the Messiah, the Saviour, the one who's come to rescue me from my sin and rescue me from the wrath of God, and I want to live eternally with him. I mean, that's good news. And it can be yours. You see, there are only two sides to John's equation. If you believe in the Son, you get eternal life because you're forgiven. If you don't obey the Son, you don't see life and God's wrath remains. It couldn't be a more stark contrast. And my urgent appeal to you is do not allow the wrath of God to remain on you. Because just as I've described heaven as more perfect than anything we can imagine... The biblical pictures of what it is to live without God are even more horrific than we ever dare have nightmares about. And my urgent appeal to you is don't let that be you. Make a choice today. As I finish now, I'm going to invite you to choose. To choose him. To choose the Christ so that your life can be caught up with him. Thanks for listening to Sermon Audio from Westminster Chapel. If you'd like to partner with us in making disciples and sharing the gospel, please consider making a one-off or regular donation. Visit westminsterchapel.org.uk forward slash giving to find out how.